Good morning. So great to be with you as we've gathered together today to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the Missions Conference weekend. Great opportunities we've had to be able to spend time together, growing in grace together, and being able to gain greater perspective on what God is doing throughout the world. So thankful for the presentations of both Friday night and uh, Saturday, they were outstanding. Well, this morning, it's my opportunity to be able to introduce our, our speaker for this morning. Uh, this is um, Brian Duggan. He and his wife, Kathy, served with Reach Global since 2007. And they had served for years in Latin America and then came back to the States. He is the Executive Vice President of International Ministries for the Evangelical Free Church. That's a Reach Global. Takes into account other aspects of ministry as well, such as Global Fingerprints Ministries and Crisis Response. Wide, varied background. Church planting, pastor, experiences in nursing, you see as well as humanitarian work, healthcare, information, technology, consulting. Uh, Brian and Kathy are Wheaton College grads. We have something in common, don't we? And um, they have had great impact for God's glory through the course of the years. And so what I'd love to do now is to have Brian come join me on, on the platform. Welcome him, would you please, as he joins me up here. And uh, Brian, as we did in first service, and as people on live stream are now joining with us as well, let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, thanking you so much for the way in which you have used Brian Cathy through the years in Latin America, and the wide range of ministries pertaining to health care, for the way in which now you've positioned him as the executive vice president, overseeing 550-plus missionaries, the 40-plus countries. So much going on, and he has entered into this position right at a pivotal point in time over these past few years of the pandemic, and now what's taking place in Eastern Europe. And his mind is filled and his heart is filled with, with what you are doing and how to shepherd well the missionaries near and afar. May he sense your presence. We're thankful, Father, that we can hear from him today. Use him in a way that brings honor to your name. Commit him to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Brian. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, now, every speaker is supposed to say that, but I really mean it because I, I've had the privilege of listening to what you are doing around the world through the missionaries that you have sent. Over 30 missionaries coming from this church. You realize that isn't very common. Missionaries are those people who come to the church and ask for money. They aren't people that are part of us and go out, but yet that's what you've done. You have raised up, you have discipled young people 
people earlier in life, people later in life, to go out into the world and carry the gospel. I want to commend you as a church. Now, you individually may say, well, I didn't have a lot to do with that, but actually your church did, and you're part of this body. And it's a, very, it's, it's a real privilege for my wife Kathy and me to be here with you and to hear some of those stories. Now, um, today we're going to be reading for, from Ephesians chapter 2. I encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Um, the topic, as you know, of this week or this missions weekend is Jesus is our peace. Now, that topic was chosen a long time ago. It wasn't chosen by me, and I think the timing is purely God's timing because we are so aware of the lack of peace going on in our world right now. Terrible things happening over in Ukraine. We're, we're hearing anecdotal stories, but the, the truth is, guys, we don't know, no one knows the whole story of what's going on except our Lord. The fog of war, the various agendas that reporters might have, the, the view of Russians, the view of Ukrainians, the view of the, the Western Europeans, we don't know all that's going on. But what we do know is there's no peace. There is no peace. And that's what uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians. And, and just to give you a hint, um, this is where we want to look at what Paul is saying about peace, and it's not what the world is saying about peace right now. Turn with me, Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, we'll be going through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the NIV. Read along with me. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, that's a lot of words, guys. And it's a lot of thoughts. It's very typical of Paul to write just incredible rich things. And you got to sit there and say, wait a minute, I got to break that down. Um, and, and where I start with is what's the big picture? What's Paul trying to say to the Ephesians? And we can find that in chapter one. So I can just read it to you very quickly. Um, Paul says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, 
which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You've heard of the seven habits of highly effective people. The second habit is begin with the end in mind. So we're beginning with the end in mind. It's that last phrase in verse 10. His purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, how does that happen? Paul goes on throughout the book of Ephesians that talks about the different aspects of how that happens. And in chapter 2, he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. Now, um, in Ephesus, there were Jews, but most of the believers were Gentiles. You remember Paul's pattern. He would go into a, a city. He would go into the, the Jewish synagogue, and he would expose the word and explain, hey, Jesus actually is the fulfillment of this. And then people would get angry and kick him out, and he'd have to run to the Gentiles. But that was his normal pattern. I can almost picture after this pattern, after a while, he said, you know, basically, let me get the synagogue piece over, let them yell at me, I'm ready to get to the Gentiles. Paul was eager to get to the Gentiles. But in this chapter, we see it both in the first half that you looked at last week, and in the second half, he is wanting the Gentiles to remember where they came from. Don't forget. He uses the word peace multiple times, four times in this section. He also uses words like unity or being together, being brought together another six times. And there is, there's a pattern there. If you've ever done inductive Bible study, you know you go and look for repeated words, right? And kind of figure out maybe that's what he's talking about. Well, Paul is talking about peace and unity together. Well, what is peace? I think in our world right now, we, our first thought would be peace would be um, Russian military leaving Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees, all million and a half of them as of yesterday, being able to return home and rebuild lives. That would be peace. That's how the world would define peace. We'd say, oh, well, it's the absence of war or the absence of hostility. That's when we have peace. It's people just getting along, not fighting. That would be peace. What can bring about peace? Negotiation, you've got um, people sitting around the table somewhere on the Belarusian border who are talking from Ukraine and from Russia. Maybe they can negotiate a peace. Is it mutual compromise? They say the best solution is a good compromise. Is it dis deciding to share mutual values? Like we're all together in this world as humans and we need to take care of the environment. That's our value that will bring about peace as we all care for our environment. Or is it the good of humanity? If we all just worked for the good of humanity, that would bring about peace. Well, these are answers that we find in current thinking and that's demonstrated in education and TV shows, movies, books. Humanity must rise above itself. Now, question, do I have any Star Trek fans in here? Are there any Star Trek fans? Okay, a few, and the rest of you won't admit it. Okay, um, Star Trek is based on an interesting premise, that at some point in the future, humanity rises above its sinful tendencies. They don't use the word sin, that's not the popular word. Rises above its anger, rise ab above... Um, poverty and rises above war and everyone then becomes able to 
go to um, Starfleet Academy, get on a big ship, and go out to the rest of the universe and bring this message of peace to get along. So Star Trek is preaching a philosophy that we just need to rise above ourselves and then we will have peace. Well, that's not what Paul is saying, but he is in a way. We need to rise above ourselves, but not in the way Star Trek teaches it. And Paul talks about how we rise above ourselves. He begins the chapter um, earlier on in verses 1 to 3. He says, you know, before, you Gentiles were just in a terrible situation. Or as we say, where I come from, North Carolina, y'all were in a mess. That's basically what he's communicating. He repeats this dismal assessment. He sort of says it all over again, particularly in verse 12. Feel these words as he's saying these in verse 12. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's pretty dismal, but it's an accurate assessment of the world we're in today. Let's break that down. They're not just separate from Jesus. They're opposed to him. We live in a world that is opposed to Jesus. They are completely, they were completely ignorant of God's teaching. At least the Jews had God's teaching. They had their own problems, but they had God's word. But the Gentiles had none of that. They knew nothing of God. They had no hope, no hope. They worshiped various gods. They, they had their various idols. Not a whole lot different than what we have today. We may not have physical idols, but they're idols of, of uh, humanism, idols of economic prosperity, idols of freedom to be who I feel like being. These are all idols, and there's no hope. God isn't even part of their worldview. They had a view of multiple gods. In today's world, do we have a general worldview of there being a one supreme creator, God? No. There is, God's name is used a lot, often uh, poorly, and often thinking of God in a very twisted version. He's not an all-powerful God. He's a confused God. He's a remote God. He's a smite-thee-on-the-head type of God. There are just incredibly twisted views of who God is. That's what the Gentiles were walking in at the time. And Paul says, that, that is what you were. So what does that look like today? Well, today, we find that there's a loss of any anchor to base values upon. People have different values. Well, what do you base your values on? Well, it's what I feel like, it's what my experience has been, it's what my friends believe, or it's what I came to when I went up on a mountain and communed with a tree. There is no objective basis for values, and yet values are spoken of a lot. The result is conflict. If we hold different values, we're going to have conflict. If I value flying in an airplane and my wife values driving in a car, we're going to have conflict on how we're going to get here. Different values cause conflict. 
There's a loss of truth. This has been so tragic. And I think in the last two years, we've seen this just explode. It used to be at least you could count on scientific truth. People might argue on different values, but at least we trusted science. Well, today, we don't trust science anymore. I can pick any stance I want on some scientific truth, and I can find something on the internet that's going to back it up, and I guarantee you there's some science that's going to say it's right. We don't have objective truth anymore. People are lost without hope and without God in the world. It leads to mutual hostility. Now, the Jews and Gentiles were hostile. Um, the Jews looked on, down on the Gentiles because they weren't the chosen people who God had set aside, which, by the way, God set aside to bless the rest of the nations. They kind of forgot that part. It's like, no, we're set aside as God's people. And they looked down on the Gentiles. Uh, the, the word uncircumcised was actually said with disdain, like, oh, you dirty people. Notice, though, that Paul says circumcision was something done by human hands. He's actually using the same phraseology as, as Moses wrote back when the children of Israel, down at the foot of Sinai, tired of waiting for Moses, they told Aaron, they gave him a bunch of gold and said, make us a golden calf made by human hands, and they worshipped it. That's the same phraseology that Paul is using here. Circumcision is just something done by human hands. It wasn't by God. That was their idol. But even unconsciously, we do the same, depending on our cultural norms. Um, we lived in Costa Rica for a number of years, and I remember a friend of mine coming to me and saying, Brian, what is the problem with you Americans have with black people? Why do you have this struggle? I said, you're right, it is a struggle, but that's everywhere. No, 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 we don't understand it. We don't have prejudice against black people. And I'd say, well, yeah, what about Nicaraguans? Well, that's different. They're all thieves and liars. That's, that's a whole different thing. That's our human tendency to look down on others. Jews against Gentiles, Gentiles against Jews. And that's where we were walking. We being the Gentiles. In darkness, without hope, and without God in this world. What we've seen over and over is there's a great stated desire for peace. But in a world that excludes God, peace is impossible. And in fact, it's impossible to even define. If you go out and ask your friends, what is peace? You will get a multitude of definitions. The world doesn't even know what peace is. And Paul gives us a definition of peace. But we have a new hope. Look with me in verse 13, and the, these just exciting words, two words, but now. So Paul right, kind of draws this incredible picture of, of hopelessness, of being lost without God in the world. And then in verse 13, he says, but now. But now, there is hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have brought been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what does he mean by far away? Well, once again, he's speaking between Jews and Gentiles, and Jews kept Gentiles physically far away. They couldn't interact with them. They couldn't get um, contaminated by them. 
Even the way the temple was built in Jerusalem, you had kind of multiple layers, and there was a court of the Gentiles, and it had this huge wall that they could not pass under penalty of death. Actually, the Romans allowed that. Under penalty of death, a Gentile could not cross that barrier. That's an important word. Paul uses it here in just a moment, barrier. There was this great separation. They were far away. The Jews, inside that barrier, they had access to God. They had their sacrifices. They had the law. They had the regulations. The Gentiles were far away. That's what Paul is referring to when he says, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then, of course, verse 14, Paul defines peace for us. Now, when I read this, I thought, wait a minute, this is really interesting. Paul doesn't give characteristics of peace. He doesn't say, okay, peace is the absence of war. Peace is, is, is this or that and the other thing. Paul defines peace as a person. Peace is a person. That person is Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. What's that barrier he's referring to? It's like that in the court of the Gentiles and then where Jews could pass. It's that barrier of hostility that that's been destroyed. There is no barrier any longer. So how did Jesus do this? In verse 15, it says, he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. The law. Well, was the law wrong? Was the law bad? No, God gave it. That was clearly given by God. But it was weak because the law could not bring permanent reconciliation with God. If you've ever gone back into the Old Testament, if you've ever read Leviticus, boy, there's a great personal devotional Bible study to study. Leviticus gives all these laws that you have to follow and, and all these sacrifices that you have to do. So you got to do a sacrifice for a peace offering, a love offering, a temple offering, and every year you have these other offerings. It never ended. So faithful Jews who loved God, they would come and offer their sacrifices, and yet they'd walk out knowing, I'm going to have to come and do this again because this is temporary. And Paul is saying that wall is gone. Peace, that barrier, has been broken and Jesus superseded the law. The law was still good, but it wasn't sufficient. So, example, we live in North Carolina now, and when we were invited up here, we could have chosen to ride a bicycle. We actually have a tandem bike. We could have chosen to ride a bike up here. But instead, what if Bill Gates called me up and said, hey, Brian, I'd love to send my corporate, my personal corporate jet and, and fly you and Kathy up to Sheboygan. Was the bicycle bad? No. But believe me, I'd be hopping on that jet because it superseded what could have worked. It did work, but it was superseded. In the same way, Jesus superseded the law with its rules and regulations and said, there's something better. Why is it better? Because it's permanent, guys. We don't have to keep going back to the cross and getting saved all over again. It's done. It's permanent. And Jesus superseded that. Why? Second half of that verse, and this is really important in defining peace, his purpose, Jesus' purpose, 
was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. You want to know what the definition of peace is? The definition of peace is the person of Jesus who took us as believers, changed us, and made us one. I I have a younger brother, and we were both rather active boys, and we played hard together, and we fought hard together. And we'd have our little squabbles, and what would my mom say? Now, shake hands, hug, say you're sorry, and you're okay. Well, we would do it, but we weren't sorry. Did that create peace? No, it did not create peace. It created the absence of hostility, at least while mom was looking. But it didn't create peace. There can be no peace within humanity. We cannot rise above ourselves. We have to be changed completely into a new humanity. What is peace? It's the new humanity in Jesus. So he doesn't have to negotiate, okay, um, you get this, you get this, you both aren't happy, but we have peace now. No. He says, no, I'm totally transforming you into a new humanity. You're different. I'm a different person than the Brian before I knew Jesus. I'm not the same person. And you as well, when you accept Christ, you are no longer the person you were before. You're a new person. So Jesus can put us together as a new humanity. And Paul goes on to say in verse 16, and in one body, one humanity, one Jesus, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Peace is Jesus. He is our peace. He makes peace among us by making us new. In verse 17, it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now, we know that's not geographical. Jesus didn't travel that far during his lifetime on earth. It was a very small area. Israel itself is very small. Um, uh, You know, they have great military and fighter jets. It takes them 30 seconds to cross their country. Two minutes to go north to south. It's a very small country. Jesus didn't travel even all of that. So how did he preach peace to those who were near and those who were far? He's talking about those who knew God through the law and regulations and those who did not know God. And Jesus' message was for both. That was Paul's big struggle with the Jewish Christians early on in his ministry. Is this gospel really for non-Jews, the uncircumcised? That's what Paul was teaching. So what is the result of that? Jesus preaching peace near and far. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The result is, it isn't just the Jews who had something of access through their sacrifices and their law, it, and the, the, the Gentiles who were kind of far away and had no access. It's like, okay, all that's gone. All that's gone. We have a new humanity with direct access to the Father. Do you know how ridiculously crazy this sounded to the Jews? They had lived all their lives that I have to follow these laws and regulations and I have access to God the Father. 
And the Gentiles who, who did all kinds of sacrifices themselves, hoping to appease the right God. I'm not sure which God I'm appeasing, but I'm going to do all I can to appease the right God. All of that's gone. Both now have access to the one true God. This is what Paul is wanting the Ephesians to remember. So what, what does it mean? Verse 19 starts another, with another one of those words that want to catch your mind. Consequently. Consequently, mean what, what came before, where new humanity brought together in unity to access the one God. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. It's taking all who accept Jesus and making them a new humanity, united, and then bringing this new humanity to relationship with God. So what does this mean? You know, um, it's interesting the different metaphors that are used throughout Scripture, even Paul using different metaphors. When he speaks about this new humanity, this church, he says it's the bride of Christ. He, he describes us as God's children, members of his family. Um, he describes us as the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. But here you use a different metaphor. We're a building. Look with me. Fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, verse 20, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I've noticed a lot of um, brick buildings around here, stone buildings. I love that kind of construction. And I can just picture the people who built those, the masons, fitting them together just right, putting the mortar in just right, one by one into something that is beautiful. That's the picture that Paul is describing here, that we are being built together, Jew, Gentile, Russian, Ukraine, Every believer being built together into this temple. What's the meaning of a temple? The temple is where God lives. Now, I have a question for us. We're Americans, and as Americans, we think of ourselves as um, rugged individualists. We have that American myth, you know, got the cowboy hat, hop on my horse and ride into the sunset. I'm a rugged individual. That infuses our worldview. It's the way we look at the world. It's the way I came to Jesus, maybe many of you. Brian, you're a sinner. You are guilty of sin. You need Jesus so you can know him and go to heaven. So I individually accepted Jesus. Many of you did as well. But that's not the end of the story. The story is we're being built together into this building, into this temple where God resides. Yes, God resides in me by his spirit. He also resides in us as the body of Christ, as the temple, as the building of Christ, where God resides by his spirit. So think about this culture to whom Paul was writing. While we tend to read this as individuals, together is that key word here. Remember how he started. You guys were separate. Or as I said, y'all, y'all were separate. You weren't part of us. But now, even we aren't the same. We, Jews, aren't the same. Together, we have been changed into this one body. So this is an important distinction as we share the message of the gospel. It's not just about me. Now, that's something that I had to learn later on. It's not just about me. 
the implication is this is about everyone who's the body of Christ. What is Paul's purpose in writing this passage? First of all, it was to remember. Why? It's one of the reasons we come to church together. It's why we sing these songs, why we praise God. It's to remind ourselves where we come from, what we've done, the utter hopelessness that we had before. Remember how bad it was, guys. Remember how bad it was. So Kathy and I have been back in the States for four years now. And even now, I, I find myself forgetting. I'm having to remind myself what life was like uh, when we lived in another country. We were in Latin America. Um, it was difficult. But uh, we also lived in Pakistan in the past. And anytime things would get kind of hard in Costa Rica and frustrating, we'd look at each other and say, oh, but it's not Pakistan. Life was hard. We reminded ourselves. If we remind ourselves of what God has done, the way he has redeemed us and created a new people, we can live in peace. Now, there are a bunch of people in this room and online, and my guess is you, you maybe have experienced some lack of peace in your life. Usually, it's with other people. You know, this world would be a lot easier if it weren't for all the people in it. But the fact is, I say that jokingly, but the fact is, no, it wouldn't. Because we are new people. And God's purpose is to have us live in unity together and to have peace together. So we need to remind ourselves where we came from to be able to live in this new life, this new humanity. We also need to remind ourselves about the hope we have. He says back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That's a lot. That is a lot. Remembering impacts our perspective. It impacts our thinking. It impacts our choices. How we see ourselves, do we see ourselves as individual sinners saved by grace? Or do we also see ourselves as a new people, together with all other believers being built into the temple of God's presence? Another implication here is, and this is not popular at all, it is clear that Jesus is the only answer. Now, you've heard that before. You know that. But really think about it. There is no other access to God. That is not a popular stance. In our country, we can still say that. In some countries, you cannot. And actually uh, be under threat of jail if you say that. In our country, it's not politically correct to say that. So it's still legal, but there's going to be a cost by saying, no, there is only one, aspect to, only one way to access God, and that's through Jesus. Let's remind ourselves of that because the world's pressure would say, no, it's okay. You, it's okay for you to believe that, but you need to say it's okay for other people to believe what they believe. And the fact is, it's not. It is not okay. Now, how I go about it with grace is very important. I don't go up to um, my Hindu neighbor and say, you're wrong. You're going to hell unless you accept Jesus. That's not how he's going to see grace. But the fact is, he is wrong. He is lost. And he is not going to have access to God except through Jesus. 
Is that really resident in my heart? This church has sent many missionaries, and you've done it for one reason. You want people to know Jesus. You have missionaries doing a number of different things um, all, all over the world, including in this country. I love the fact that you're supporting young people who are doing internships and looking for what God may be leading them to. You have a heart for the world to know Jesus. Why? Because you know that is the only hope for peace in the person of Jesus. Well, the world's desperate to know this truth, and it can only know it if we send people to share it. Jesus' last words were pretty clear. We heard that earlier, Matthew Go, make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is some of Jesus' last words. It's a command, and you followed that. Now, our perspective changes because we know the ultimate end. What's the ultimate end? I said at the beginning. Y'all still with me? Everything coming into unity in Jesus. That's the ultimate end. If I know the end, then, then I, I can behave differently. What can that look like? Well, it's a difference in my priorities and my values. When Kathy and I um, were called into, back into vocational ministry, we were um, uh, 45 when we left. Sounds kind of old for missionaries to go. Um, and we were living in Charlotte, nice neighborhood, nice home, kids you know, all dressed fine and everybody's happy, everything was good. Why in the world would you do that? You know where that question came from? It wasn't from my, from my non-believing friends and colleagues. They said, great, man, that, that's really cool. You're going to go serve. They didn't understand why. They heard it, but they didn't understand it. You know where we got that question from? Why in the world would you do this? How could you do this to your children? Our son who was in college, you're going to leave the country? Although that sounds kind of fun. They can't come home, right? <laughs> Your daughter who is 16-year-old, your other son's 12, the other daughter's 7. How could you do this to them? It's going to just destroy them. How could you do that? If we have the perspective that Paul's talking about, we have a very different way of looking at life. Why wouldn't you do that? This is a wonderful privilege. Now, I'm not trying to raise this up as some grand thing. Please hear me. Um, but the fact is, our perspective changes when we remember where we came from. It's a different way of making decisions. Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And later on in the, in the book, he says, don't worry about me, guys. You know, being in prison wasn't like being in a nice jail in the center of town. Prison was pretty rough where Paul was. He, he was not well cared for, but he wasn't worried about it at all. How could that be? He had a different perspective. He knew the end that was coming, that the end was going to be unity in Christ. It changes in how we give. So if I've got, I've paid all my bills, I've got $500 in my checking account, um, how generous am I going to be with it? Well, I'm probably going to say I probably ought to save that in case extra bills come in. But my perspective changes if I know tomorrow Bill Gates, who is my favorite billionaire at the moment, I don't know, Bill Gates says... I'm going to be putting a billion dollars in your checking account tomorrow. How will I look at the 500 I have today if I know I've got a billion coming tomorrow? I have a whole different perspective. And what Paul is saying earlier in chapter 1, you've got all the riches that God has to offer. That's coming, guys. We've got it now. My checking account's going to have a billion dollars 
Now, we're not talking money. We're talking the richness of living in the presence of God. If I really understand that, how do I behave today with what I have today? It changes our perspective, and we make choices that make no sense to the rest of the world. Well, you guys have been sending. That's a natural aspect of recognizing what God has done for us. You have been sending. I encourage you to pray for more laborers for the harvest. We have so many opportunities out in the world. You've got missionaries with a variety of mission organizations. I work with Reach Global, which is the mission of the Evangelical Free Church of America. We have 550 missionaries in 43 countries, um, actually 42, because we just left Ukraine. Um, but we, are, we have connections and partners there that we're able to help and support from afar. We have missionaries in three other surrounding countries, four other surrounding countries that are receiving refugees. Encourage your young people to consider missions. Come for a couple of years. John has some materials you can look at about what it looks like to just come and see. For those of you who are maybe like us in your 30s or 40s who have kids and you got a job and you got a house payment and all that, it's not practical to become a missionary. Listen to others, it's totally impractical. And then put that aside and say, but I got a billion coming in my checking tomorrow. I can afford to do this. It will not hurt your kids. Our kids are world citizens now. They, are, they have a perspective of the world that they would not have had if they had stayed in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's God's grace. It did not destroy them. They whined. They cried. And yet, it's amazing that billion dollars in the checking account extended into the family and how it impacted our family. For those of you later in life, it's not too late. You may not be able to go learn a new language, but you can be involved in God's message to the world. I encourage you to consider it. While you're praying for labors for the harvest, be careful. God might be knocking on your own heart. Jesus is our peace. Let me just read from you in closing this last words from John. Jesus said, peace I live, leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Jesus' peace is ours because he made us a new humanity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words inspired by your spirit, written by the hand of Paul that defines peace in a way the world simply doesn't understand. And I ask that you will remind us of where we have come and where we are now. Direct access to you. I can stand here and come right into your presence because of what Jesus did, because of the peace that he made. And the hostility, the, 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 the break between humanity isn't fixed. It's surpassed because Jesus took us and made us a new humanity, building us together into this temple where God lives by his spirit. We thank you for these truths. Lord, I don't know who you may be speaking to, but I ask that your spirit will continue to impress your message today on the hearts of your children. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you very much. It has been a joy to be with you. God bless you. You're dismissed.